I really want to thank Jim for uh, the invitation to come and speak this morning. Uh, it's really my pleasure to come and speak to Rippon's uh, retreat, and I'm really glad to have the opportunity. Uh, what I'd like to do is maybe give you some formal remarks, uh, take about 10 minutes, and then open it up for questions, any questions you might have for me, and you can, uh, they can come from a range of different subjects, from uh, last week's Super Bowl to uh, uh, politics or uh, talk about wireless if you want to. Uh, and then uh, I'll introduce our next speaker after that, okay? Um, <clears throat> in asking me to speak this morning, Jim uh, asked me to share with you some of the lessons I've learned <clears throat> on both the football field as well as on Capitol Hill and how some of my experiences might translate into how congressional Republicans can deal with some challenges that face the nation today. And, uh, Jim, I agreed to speak <clears throat> before I really considered what a tall order that was. But here I am, so I'm going to give it a try. Uh, let me start with an old coach's admonition that goes, discipline is doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it. Uh, winning an election, winning an amendment, getting a bill signed into law, that's the fun stuff, right? It's like catching passes or scoring touchdowns. You ask people if they want to do that, they say, sure, I'll sign up for that anytime. But none of that stuff can happen without a lot of inglorious, hard, sometimes unappealing work. Most people won't see it, and it's not always fun. But it matters. It really matters. It's what makes the difference between winning and losing. Whether you're an athlete lifting weights, running stadium steps in the summer heat, or foregoing a dessert you might like to eat, or you're a member of Congress or a staff member answering mail, returning calls, or tending to an absolutely overflowing inbox, as I know you often do, it's the hard work when no one's looking and often when you think there are more uh, fun ways to spend your time, it's that work that pays off at crunch time. If you want to meet your goals in sports or in politics, you've got to put in the work. Well, the second thing I think that's important in your work, the folks on the other side are your opponents, not your enemies. They're your opponents, not your enemies. Sometimes this is really, really hard to remember. And I know that. I can assure you that it certainly wasn't uh, easy to remember that when I was playing for the Seahawks and we had the Raiders in our division. Those guys were nasty and easy to dislike. But even in great hard-fought rivalries, it was important to remember, most of the time anyway, that the guys across the line were just like me, playing hard and trying to win. That's true here, too, except uh, that no one in Congress has ever tried to poke me in the eyes on the bottom of a pile after a tackle, uh, and they did in Oakland. Uh, <clears throat> I know that the people who are attracted to politi politics are a passionate bunch, and that's a good thing because passion can take you far. But unbridled, it can also lead you astray. It can lead you to places that you wish later you hadn't gone. The other team may be wrong some of the time, maybe even all of the time, but I found that it really helped to get to know them. And I can't emphasize that enough, to get to know them. And I made and have kept some great across-the-aisle friendships, not relationships, but friendships. That is much harder to do if you let, uh, let the differences of opinion become personal. So don't. Win without hate. And I would just underscore that. Win without hating the other side. Third, <clears throat> don't showboat. The great Bear Bryant, for those of you too young to remember him, he was the legendary coach at the University of Alabama. Coach Bryant used to say to his players, 
when you get in the end zone, act like you've been there before. And we had a coach in Seattle that used to say, act like you've been there before and that you're going to come back. When you have success, be happy, but proud privately. But don't draw attention to yourself. Don't draw too much attention to yourself or your boss. The reality is that we Republicans are a pretty buttoned-down group, and most of us look just plain silly doing a touchdown dance anyway. The fourth lesson from football that that also applies in politics is, and this is really important, have fun. Have fun at your job. You're blessed to have a wonderful and unique opportunity to work in one of America's truly special places and one of the world's most remarkable institutions. Value that. Appreciate it. Take the time to look up at the Capitol Dome. I can remember doing that many times, walking over to a vote at midnight and just looking at the dome lit up, and it really sparked something inside of me that was really powerful. Uh, but it was a deep sense of commitment and love for our country. But take the time to look up at that dome and imagine all the people who've come before you. And if you ever get so jaded that you cease to marvel at the wonder of this system that the founders created, know that it's time to go. If it's, if it's not fun, if it's not special, if you're not doing it for the right reasons, stop. Because we need people in government who are here for the right reasons. You have to be willing to serve. Finally, I guess if there's one piece of advice I could pass along to you, it would be this. Always remember to keep things in perspective. It's true in football, it's true in politics, and it's true in life. Remember what's important. Things like relationships and personal integrity. Those are things that are really important. And remember that there will be good days and bad days. And to that end, Jim asked me recently to write an essay for the Ripon Forum about the late Jack Kemp. And one of the stories I recounted is a piece of advice he had for me during one of the more challenging moments in my congressional career. It was uh, the late 1990s, and I had run for the House Majority Leader, really to try to send a signal to the current Majority Leader, Dick Armey, uh, that we were not pleased with the direction that the House was taking in general. Uh, I had run for the House Majority Leader and lost, and I bumped into Jack Kemp uh, one day later. And uh, perhaps sensing a a more disappointment than I was willing to let on, uh, Jack ended our conversation by quoting one of my favorite historical figures, Winston Churchill. He told me, Steve, I want you to remember that success is not final, failure is not fatal, but it's the courage to continue that counts. Courage to continue. Those words have stuck with me since that time, nearly 15 years later, amid the political dysfunction we read about and the economic uncertainty we see every day, they are words that I believe are relevant to each and every person in this room. So I would just want to offer that encouragement to you uh, and uh, tell you what a great job uh, I think you have uh, in the House and in the Senate, and uh, just to enjoy it, have fun. Um, And if it's not fun, you need to start looking for something else, uh, because it should be. So with that, that's my comments. Uh, I'm glad to take any questions you guys might have right now before I introduce the next speaker. Have you had enough coffee and donuts to uh, get your mind working yet? I know how that is. 
Did you guys watch the Super Bowl? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I think I think the two sides have gotten further apart, not closer together. Um, you know, they always used to tell me in '94, after we were elected in the, in the election in '94, that uh, Washington started growing apart. But you know what? I think that's and I think that's probably true. But my uh, response to that is it probably grew apart uh, uh, because for the 40 years before that. It was one-party rule, and it was a, a majority that was uh, uh, unbeatable. So it was a lot easier for Republicans and Democrats to get along then because Republicans knew all they had to do is show up and vote no about everything, and Democrats show up and vote yes about everything, and it didn't matter what the other side said because the Democrats knew they were always going to win. And so it made for a real happy bunch. Uh, but when that <clears throat> election created the scenario where the sides were much more close in terms of the numbers that we had, um, it got a lot more contentious, and it's continued to this day. And I think it's only because uh, the elections have gotten a lot closer and the numbers in the House uh, have gotten a lot closer as well. Uh, so I don't view that as necessarily a negative thing, um, but it's just been a result of having uh, elections that have drawn districts uh, that have meant that there's it's a, it's a more balanced uh, Congress than there was in the past. So that would be one big difference. Uh, <clears throat> another difference is uh, all the ethics rules that are in place today. Um, we didn't have those uh, back when I was in Congress, and you know it's not that we did a lot of unethical things, but uh, we just didn't have to report you know going to dinner with somebody or all that kind of stuff. And so that's, I personally don't think that's a great thing. Yes, sir. I wonder if you could reflect back on when you were serving in Congress and this group really talked about what you remember as being the most effective ledge director or communication staffer that you had and things that you might have, a bit of advice you might have parsed from a very practical sure. member to staff with. Yep. Um, well, I had, I had uh, several people work for me over the course of seven years, um, and some were very, very effective and some weren't. Uh, but the people that I respected the most were people that were willing to offer me their candid, honest opinion, even if they felt like it was going against what they thought I would say. They gave me their opinion about and, and their position on the particular issue. And not only that, but before they even dared to come tell me what they thought about the legislation or the effort, uh, they spent the time to educate themselves about this particular issue, uh, whatever it was. So that's what I really appreciated about um, my staff when they came to me, is one, I knew that they were prepared, they, were, they knew the subject uh, forwards and backwards, they knew where people were on this particular issue and could relate that to me. They could tell me where people were, where they were, what the issue was, um, and uh, how they felt like uh, that impacted our country. Um, they gave me their honest opinion. They didn't tell me where I needed to be as a result of their opinion, but they gave me their honest opinion, even if they felt like it might be going against um, what I might believe. 
And I always appreciated that. Uh, particularly, I, I think I really appreciated people that were uh, strong enough in their own character and sense of who they were that they were willing to offer me their candid, honest opinion. And then at that point, I had to make a decision about which direction I went on any piece of legislation or issue uh, that was before me. But I, I always uh, respected uh, those members of my staff who were willing to give me their honest and educated opinion uh, about the issues. So I think that's really important for uh, staff people to know that, uh, that, that members really do appreciate um, their staff who have the courage to say, you know, this is, this is what I think about this. I've done this research, I've done this homework, and this is what I think about this issue. And then, you know, as a staff person, you let it go from there because it's not, it's not your job uh, to make up, you know, make up the, the member's mind. It's his job to make up his mind. But it's your job to give them the facts uh, as, as you see them and, uh, and then move forward. And so I think that's really important for us because uh, I think sometimes uh, staff comes to Washington and uh, sometimes you can get intimidated by the situation or by the member himself. Uh, sometimes members aren't real friendly, uh, but uh, I think I think ultimately uh, those uh, those members of Congress really appreciate members who have the backbone to stand up and say, you know, this is what I believe. Uh, you can vote how you want, but this is this is where I I'm, I come down on this issue because of this, these five reasons. Yes, ma'am. Uh, that's a good question, and um, I, I would tell you from my perspective, uh, and that's coming in in '94 when uh, when when uh, Republicans hadn't been in the majority for 40 years. Uh, it was literally back in 1954, I think, when the last time Republicans were in the majority until 1994, and <clears throat> um, I can remember getting the distinct impression, if not being told verbatim, that a freshman's place is to be in the back of the room, watch and listen the senior members, and follow our lead. And I can tell you that, um, and, and if, if you're from a leader's office, uh, I apologize for this, uh, but <laughs> I think that's exactly the wrong thing to do. Uh, the people who elected you to office aren't sitting in that room over there in what is it, H5 or whatever it is down there where they have their meetings. The people who elected you are at home, and they've sent you here to do a job, and you've made certain promises and commitments to them uh, when you ran for office, and you need to fulfill them and do them any way and every way that you can. And uh, I don't think being a backbencher uh, is how you fulfill an agenda that you've promised to your constituents at home. Uh, you've got to be up front. You've got to lead. You have to form coalitions. You have to force votes uh, in committee and on the floor. Uh, you have to continue to pressure your leadership to say, these are the issues that are important to my constituents. How do I get them done? Uh, and and be, be a force to be reckoned with. 
and, and don't feel like that you have to be a silent member sitting in the back of the room until you figure out what goes, what's going on. I mean, literally, I came to Washington in 1994. I got a C in political science. I took one <laughs> political science class. I, I was standing in front of the Capitol doing the first interview I ever did in Washington, D.C. with the reporter from my hometown paper and kept referring to the, to the Capitol as the White House. Now, I mean, I, I was not, I, I'm, I'm not a stupid guy. It was just a mistake. And, um, but, but literally, it, it, it showed him and me uh, how little time I'd actually spent in Washington, D.C. And I think that's the reason I was elected, because I said, I want to bring some common sense to Washington. And uh, so you, you, you can't do that being one of the uh, members of the, you know, the silent members in the back of the room. You've got to you got to step up your game, and uh, so that's what I would say. Yes, sir. As, as employers, we, we we work hard to attract and retain top talent. Mm. Uh, and when you were serving, I suspect you were a lot more popular than, than those who serve today. Uh, what's going on with the the, uh, the low approval rating? Uh, is it deserved? And what does it mean for coming to work on Capitol Hill? And you know, I wish I had an answer for you. Uh, I really don't. Um, you know, I, I see what's going on, and I read about it. Uh, I hear about it. Uh, I listen to my wife, uh, and she's complaining about it. And I, I know that, you know, 95% of the criticism that's aimed at Congress is uh, comes from a sense of frustration with, with everything that's going on in, in life and in our world and our country. Um, so, you know, some of it I some of it I discount for that reason, uh, but there is a sense that the partisanship and the bickering um, has reached a new level, and I, I don't know that I'd necessarily agree with that, uh, but that's certainly the opinion that's held by a majority of Americans, and uh, I, I don't know how you get out of this box um, uh, because. I mean, I'd like to say, well, we got to have a you know bipartisan effort to uh, legislation and all that sort of stuff, and you know that's not the system of government that our founding fathers established in this country. Uh, if you look back through the years, I mean, I'm talking hundreds of years, there's always been partisan bickering. There's always been deep, heated emotion involved. There's been people shot in the Capitol over legislation and differences of opinion. Now. I haven't seen anybody shot in the Capitol in a long time. Um, but there's, there's always been uh, passionate people in Washington, D.C. Uh, that are willing to stand up for what they believe. And I think that's a good thing. I don't think it's bad. Um, so I guess I, 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 I'm, I'm puzzled, too, as to what you do then, because you've got this, this uh, public uh, animus out there that, that – um, is is distasteful, uh, but at the same time, um, you know the, the 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 partisan bickering I think is a healthy thing for our system of government. Uh, if you can get to the point that you're actually doing something, I, th I think when the partisanship leads to dysfunction, and I would say dysfunction is when you have a budget that hasn't been passed in a thousand days, that that's a problem.
and I don't know how you fix that, but that's definitely a problem. And, uh, and I think that things like that uh, lead to the frustration that, that's in the public today. Yes, sir. About, about Newt? I have many stories. Um, <clears throat> let, me, let, me, let me just put it this way. Um, I like Newt Gingrich. I, I, I really do. I, I like him as a person. I think he's, uh, I think he's uh, uh, an excellent speaker, small s. Um, and... <laughs> And he's very, he's very motivational uh, and, and, and does a great job. Um, there was, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the most famous story that you've probably even heard before uh, because somebody's written, uh, actually Joe Scarborough wrote about it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we had a vote in Congress, it, this was probably in 98 or 99, something like that. So Newt had been speaker for four or five years. And um, it was it was it was it was not a really big vote. It was on an appropriations bill, and this was uh, this like one term after we were elected in '94, two terms after we were elected, and we had ratcheted down the spending across the board uh, in our country, and uh, we're on a good path to get the country back, you know, to where we actually had a balanced budget, and. The bill that came to the floor was an appropriations bill to fund um, our own offices, not, not our offices, but the appropriations offices. And um, the bill called for an increase in spending, like a 50% increase or something really ridiculous. And uh, we just said, wait, you know, we just reduced the spending of the committee and now you're going to increase the spending on the committee? That doesn't make sense. That's not what we came to Washington to do. And so there was about 11 of us who voted against the rule uh, on that appropriation spending bill, and it didn't pass. So there was sort of an emergency uh, in the Republican caucus because, um, you know, we had the members to vote out anything in the House, just like they do today, if you all hang together. Uh, but there were 11 of us, 11 of us who said, no, nah, we're, we're not going to vote for that because it's, it's, it's really going against the grain of what we came to Washington to do, and that's to, you know, try to balance the budget. And so this came at a time when Newt was kind of in his nadir of uh, leadership uh, in the House, and uh, he elected to have a conference um, of all Republicans uh, in the House and do it that night. Because this, this vote probably took place at 4 or 5 o'clock. And so that evening, uh, he called a Republican conference down in, what is it, HC5? That's, that's, that's the room, yeah, HC5. And it was very unusual because we'd had a lot of meetings down there, a lot of meetings of our conference. But we'd never had a meeting where they actually sent the police to go get you if you didn't show up in the room. They did for this meeting. And we waited until every single member of the House of Representatives who was a Republican got to the room. And when you get that many members into that HC5, we had 200 and whatever, 225, 230, 240 members, um, it was crowded and it was hot. And a lot of us have been there a long time. But Newt got up in front of all of us and 
started just railing away about how, you know, some of us think we're smarter than everybody else, and, um, you know, we got we to gotta stick together and, and move legislation and uh, all that kind of stuff. And he said, I just want to challenge the 11 of you that voted against this rule to come and tell this conference why you voted against the rule. And so <clears throat> I, I knew I was the one that he was thinking about. And so I, I went right up to the front. I was the first one to the microphone. And uh, I described to him a situation that I'd had in 1982. 1982, most of you probably weren't even born then, but 1982 was the first strike that the NFL had uh, during my playing years. Um, there was actually one back in the 70s, but uh, 82 was a big strike, and it actually turned in not to a strike, but a lockout. And um, during the lockout, I had said, I, I, I don't feel like I don't feel like it's right for me to strike. I signed a contract with the Seattle Seahawks to play for X number of years, X number of dollars, and not a lot of dollars either, by the way. Uh, my first three years in the NFL, I made twenty-eight, thirty-five, and forty-two thousand dollars. But I, I signed a contract. I signed a contract, and I, and I said I'd play. And eighty-two was one of the years that I signed to play. And so um, uh, I said, I don't, I don't feel like because you've got a union that I can break my word that I gave to the Seahawks that I would play, and so I can't strike. And I literally um, was called on the carpet by a guy who was employed by the union and a former player. And uh, he came to that meeting, and he was standing up the front just like I'm doing right now, and he said, uh, Largent, and I was right in the back of the room, he said, Largent, we have ways to deal with you, and we'll take care of you later. It was It was not a veiled threat um, that they had some big people to do bodily harm to me. And um, so I recounted that story. Uh, and so I, I told the speaker, I said, Mr. Speaker, I have to tell you in all honesty, I've been in smaller rooms than HC5 with bigger people that are, than are in the, than, that are in this room right now and been threatened with physical harm. And so I would tell you, Mr. Speaker, that uh, I came here with a commitment to the people who elected me uh, to uh, vote for uh, legislation that put the government on a downward path of spending, not upward path. And so I can't, I can't help you on this vote. And, at, at, and then there were several other guys after me who spoke, but um, uh, it really kind of changed the, um, the spirit of the room, if you will. Uh, after I spoke, and, and um, uh, people understood at least why I was doing what I was doing. But it was a uh, tension-filled time, to say the least. Yes, ma'am. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I heard a statistic just uh, this week that said that kids, kids under the age of 32, I think it might have been even primarily under 28, that they watch 10% of the television that people over that age watch today. That they're watching their iPhone, they're watching their iPad, they're getting information, programming, television, videos 
on their iPad and iPhones, they're not going to the television. So that highlights the importance of social media in the world to come. Uh, and I'm talking about in the very near term, if not right now. Uh, so that, to me, just underscores the importance, particularly for people uh, in politics, of making sure you know how that world connects to your constituents. Uh, and, you know, like I said, o over the age of 32, you can still reach them through, you know, television commercials or mail, you know. You can, you can actually send mail to those people. Uh, but the people that are under 32, you can't touch them unless you're in social media, unless you're connecting with, with them where they're connecting. And they're not connecting through television. They're not connecting through newspapers. Um, most people under the age of 32 have never had a newspaper prescription or subscription. They've gotten it through uh, their iPad. So it just, it really calls for some different kind of thinking. And I see most of you are of that age. Uh, and so you're thinking this way. But it, it, it really does cause for, uh, it calls for a different um, avenue of communication today than we have ever had in the past. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud. I'm, I represent the wireless industry, and, and we're a piece of this new, new way you communicate. But I would tell you, if, if, if your boss is not communicating using social media, uh, using uh, access through the Internet, um, then he's missing a significant portion of his constituents uh, in not doing that uh, because it's so important today. And it's going to be, I see it, I see it accelerating, not going the other direction.